Welcome to 60 Foot Geek, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is a podcast all about filmmaking and movies. And um, what we're aiming to do um, is to satisfy your huge inner geek uh, by bringing you some highly interesting conversations about the world of filmmaking and speak to the people who have been to the very serious front line of the biz they call show. So my very first guests are two lovely people. One is an actor with nearly 130-ish films under his belt. Um, so he's seen some things you people wouldn't believe. And the other is a young British director with only three films under his belt, but he too has also seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Please welcome the first guests to grace the microphones of 60 Foot Geek, Mr. Jason Fleming and Mr. Iran Creevy. And another thing we're going to try and do on this show is to get people talking in our lovely secret studio in the heart of Soho, um, London, who have history together or who have collaborated on projects in the past. Now, this could prove a disaster with a lot of name calling and brawling as I inadvertently bring up old shit between actors and directors who apparently hated working with each other uh, in my quest for film knowledge. Or it could go brilliantly um, and we could all hear some really insightful and brilliant stuff. Now, you two have collaborated on... Shifty, and welcome to the punch. But, and I hear on the grapevine, something that I never knew is that you two go way back even before you worked together as director and actor. Mm. I started working in Soho, just like literally the, on this street. No, Diablo Street is connected to Waldorf Street, right? I started yeah. working at um, Portman Entertainment. My first job when I left university, got a job at Portman Entertainment, and I was running tapes and stuff around Soho, just as a runner, making teas and coffees, running tapes around. And I was doing it for a couple of years, and I got, you know, and earning like seven grand a year, fucking working my ass off, trying to, sorry, swearing. But, uh, yeah. We could deal with that, <laughs> we don't could worry. Deal with that. But um, working my ass off, and... I knew of Jason through friends of friends. And then one night, I think I tapped you up in a nightclub. We were having a drink. And I said, listen, I'd do anything to get on a film set as a mm -hmm. runner. And Jason was just about to go start working on a film called Layer Cake. And Jason, and you said, look, I, c I can't promise you anything. Yeah. So I can get you a job with the two producers, which was Adam, oh, yeah, Adam Bowling, Bowling and Dave Reed, who... Are kind of gone on to be quite prolific producing themselves and produce all of Matt Vaughan's films and Kick Ass and um, the X Men movies yeah. and they've done Kingsman as well. And they were producing Layer Cake at the time. And Jay said, I can get you an interview, but I can't promise you that you're going to get a job on a film. Mm -hmm. So now I went along to the interview, met Adam Bowling, Dave Reed, who are quite ferocious and yeah. scary. <laughs> Dave Reed, you could do an impression of Dave Reed. It's also Adam Bowling is called Army Adam because he's an ex-Marine. I mean, they're proper, they're <laughs> right, proper fans. Right. Yeah, Adam Bowling's an ex-Marine who does like Iron Man challenges and yeah. Dave Reed is like, talks. Dave Reed's like, well, in fact, he's in Lockstock and he, he works behind the bar when he goes, see, like, you never told me this was a Samoan pub. He goes, it's a Samoan pub, and he hands over a cocktail, and that's that's uh, Adam. <laughs> that's so Dave Reed. That's Dave. Dave Reed. He's tough enough to be in. in so, yeah, uh, so I, I got so Jason kindly got me a job interview. I went along to the job interview, um, went in there, went wonderfully. I was in good shape at the time because we were doing training to do the triathlon because you were doing the triathlon as yeah. well, and somehow I'd got involved and I was doing the triathlon with them. We were all doing lots of training, swimming, running. And Adam Bowling said, you look like you're in good shape. And I said, yeah, you know, I like, to keep in, uh, I like to keep fit. And he said, we've got this actor called Tony Hippolyte, who was originally going to play the George... I can't remember the guy that plays yeah, Morty. Yeah, George, the, yeah Morty. The, the Morty guy, guy that plays Morty in Layer Cake. It was another actor that was going to play Morty in Layer Cake. 
um, this guy called Tony Hippolyte, who was who hadn't been seen since he did a movie called Absolute Beginners with like David Bowie, and they said we're going to why don't you come on board and train this actor to get in shape for Layer Cake, and um, I said yeah, wicked. He said you can drive, right? I said yeah, of course I can drive. He said go outside, give your driving details, fill out the form, and we'll get your car and you can start driving him to the gym and keeping him fit. I said yeah, brilliant. And I walked outside and I was like fuck, I haven't got a driving. <laughs> so I was like shit, I haven't got a driving license. So weirdly, I jumped on the train, went round to see Tony Hippolyte, the actor. Got on really well with him. I said, but I've got something to admit. I said, I haven't got, an, I haven't got a driving license. I can't take you to the gym. And he said, you're going to have to go back and come clean to Adam Bowling and Dave Reed. So I jumped back on the tube, went round to Vaughan Marv Films, knocked, talked to the, the assistant, knocked on their door, and uh, Adam Bowling said, what the fuck are you doing back here? And I said, uh, I've got something to admit. So I walked into their office, and Dave Reed and Adam Bowling both sitting there staring at me. I said, I've... I've made a massive mistake. I um, I was so keen to get this job that I lied to you, and I I actually don't have a a, a driving license. And I just went dead. Meanwhile, they called me, going, "That case is brilliant. He's fantastic. <laughs> we loved him. <laughs> he seems sort of the earth. He's like, he would like, yeah. fit right in. And uh, he's and thank God Dave, he can drive. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, we'll give, we'll give him ten out of ten for original thing. So then Dave Reed said to me, "You fucking come into my office." And our office, and you lie to our faces. And the blood by this time is like draining her face. <laughs> and you expect us to give us a job. And they sort of just stared for me a bit. And then Adam Bonner says, I like you, Creevy. You've got bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they gave me a job as Daniel Craig's standing stroke floor runner, which I didn't need to drive for. They said, as long as you can make your own way to set, you've still got a job on the film. And that was how it started yeah. and my first job in the proper film industry as per se was on layer cake as yeah. a floor runner stroke Daniel Craig stand in because I'm like the same height Jason was your entry into the acting world as salubrious as Ronnie's um, <laughs> what sparked you into becoming an actor I was 10 <laughs> she was 11 and she was playing um, she was playing Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz and I was like mate Scarecrow kisses Dorothy. <laughs> and before I knew it, I was going, I could while away the hours conferring with the flowers. And she ran off with the tin man. But anyway, um, so that, I, I started a primary school, so I've always done it. Always, That's always been my thing. I often say with young kids who want to get into acting as well, is not having any fear comes from the fact you don't know the odds. And if you don't know the odds, you don't worry about them. So... I didn't know how many people got into drama school and I didn't know how many people, once you're at drama school, when you left drama school, I didn't know that only two people after 10 years would be earning a living. Right, I had no right. idea. Yeah, yeah, so I yeah. just carried on and it worked out. Um, well, I think that fearlessness is kind of key to, in, in any form of this industry, is yeah. that you have to be ready to make that leap. If you sit and worry too much about, oh, if this happens, or <coughs> I don't make my rent or... Yeah. It can all fall apart and you just won't do it. So you just have to... I, I just liken it to wading through snow. Do you know what I mean? Just got to keep yeah. on marching through. And no yeah. matter how many hits you take, just keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward, never stop, never let it get you down. Just keep going. And yeah. that's all you can do, I think. That's what I want to hear is, like, you know, the, the realities of the, the processes of getting to where, say, you two guys have got since day dot. Jason uses the, uh, the Wizard of Oz um, moment, uh, uh, moment as, as being his kind of uh, eureka moment. And um, Definitely. Was it a film? Was it um, that kind of uh, inspired you? What yeah, I had, the, the I had the sort of same influences that a lot of kids of my generation did. I was born in 1975, so I was a kid of the 80s. The same sort of thing seeing Superman 2, Empire Strikes Back, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard Predator. Those movies in particular 
influenced me heavily, Goonies, Ghostbusters. Mm. Um, I became obsessed by set pieces. I remember seeing the opening 15 minutes of Once Upon a Time let's, in the let's West. Get, let's get a shot of that. Once Upon a Time in the West, which oh, was this Sergio Leone Western, which had this 15-minute opening, which was mesmerising. There's no dialogue. And it was the first time where I watched it and I thought, there's an auteur behind this. There's somebody who's crafted this and put this together. And I remember watching, for example, like Carlito's Way and the, the pool hall sequence where, <clears> you know, you think you're big time, you're going to fucking die big time. And I was Incredible. like, suddenly there must have been a point where I was like, oh, wow, there's someone at home that does this. Yeah. I want to do this. It's a ballet. It's, yeah, I want to get whoever's creating this kind of yeah. opera of vision and images and sound is... Um, this is unbelievable, and I suddenly decided that that's where I wanted to you go. Still are, you still are obsessed with that. I am obsessed yeah. with that. Yes, yeah, you yeah, are. I am obsessed with yeah, you, know, <laughs> you only have to look at you, but you've yeah, actually yeah, yeah. tattooed with your John, body with John Woo, John Woo, Kung Fu Hustle. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock is a great... So, so this is the, the Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock, yeah. the birds on tattoo. See, on my tattoos are like Spice Girls, the movie, <laughs> Seed of Chucky. <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let's get on. Let's get on to a film that you are classically remembered for, Jason, and that is Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. How did Lock, Stock come about as a project, and did you think at the time of filming <sighs> we're on to a winner here? Lock, Stock came out of Matt Vaughan and Guy Ritchie two young you know London um, ambitious people one a great writer Guy and one a voracious and and bullheaded producer who decided that this was what he was going to do and this is how he was going to get rich right you know um that didn't work out. He married Claudia Schiff and now lives in a mansion. Um, anyway. But, whatever, whatever, whatever happened to Matt Ward? Whatever happened to Matt Ward? Uh, Midas touch. Anyway. Anyway. But, but, um, but you know, that, 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 what happened on that was they had very little money and they just pushed and pushed and pushed and made the film they wanted to make. Took no notes from anyone. Um, listened to what people had to say, but basically made what they wanted to make. Right. And uh, it resulted in Lockstock. But, you know, initially it was like, you know, we got three grand each for it and we were making a film with Vinnie Jones. It was kind of the bottom of the bucket, really. And, and an interesting story that I've heard about Lockstock, which I don't know, it's not wildly out there, is that they there was a complete other storyline in the movie, wasn't there? Yeah. With a female lead that was completely cut out and removed. Yep. And you had to go back and reshoot some of the movie, right? Yeah. Which is why you've got a hat on in one of the scenes. Yeah, because my hair's long. My hair's long. Yeah, that's true. So Jason had to go... So it wasn't that an easy process in initially. You know, even then they were trying to find their feet and figure the film out and yep. they removed a... Well, Jason can tell better than me. Was, um, Laura, Laura <laughs> Bailey, there was, a, there, was a, there was a love story between Nick Moran and Laura Bailey, which was the, se- was the main story of the film. Oh and my. it didn't really work out as well as we'd hoped or as well as Guy and um, Matt had hoped so they got rid of it and uh you know harvey weinstein came to see it said it was awful uh walked out the screening and uh they went oh dear this hasn't gone quite as well as we'd hoped and then they went back and um in fact funnily enough i'd just done a really big movie at the time um uh called deep rising which was about um a cruise liner a cruise ship a luxury cruise ship that sinks and it was brought out on the same but day attacked, by a, yeah, attacked by a giant squid yeah attacked by a giant squid that's an important point you missed out <laughs> attacked it, by a giant basically squid basically it's about, it about a luxury <laughs> cruise liner that sinks and they brought it out on the same day as Titanic <laughs> thanks anyway <laughs> but I, I think people listening to this will know will know about uh, deep, deep, deep rising yeah, yeah. but I'd just done that and so I had a couple of quid and uh, Matt and um, and Guy were like, we need to shoot three days. But then back in the back then, you know, you could shoot, 
you could do three days shooting in central London with a large cast for you know 20 grand and I basically that's all I had in the world but I gave it to them and so I became an investor in Lockstock which, right. is, which was great but you know we got a few quid back and they reshot the three days cut it back into the film got rid of the, the love story and you know that's what Lockstock but is. that's testament to that <clears throat> fearlessness that we were talking about yeah. because they're first time fi- filmmakers and Matt Vaughan and Guy had the vision to go you know what let's just get rid of that let's move this let's reshoot this we can fix this and not a lot of people have that fearlessness or that vision or that foresight mm. to do that they're just mm. going no I think this is working and I think I it's think- a lesson to all of us to have the to have the the belief that you can do that you can fix something up to the last minute you know the picture was basically locked but for the producers and the director to go look we can make this perfect we can fix this mm. even at last mm. minute I mean we always talk about it being you're in a film, film with Vinnie Jones what a disaster because obviously <laughs> Vinnie was the best thing in it and was an amazing you know amazing <laughs> performance and there's you know the, I mean he is the centre of that film and you know we all remember Vinnie from it but it was that thing going, I'm making a film with Vinnie Jones. And then at the end of it, you're like, oh, I just knew Vinnie Jones was going to be a star. <laughs> you know, and uh, Vinnie being the lovely person he is, is, is... But yeah, I remember when we were making um, Layer Cake that half of the crew had just come off the back end of um, this small zombie movie that was being made in England. And I remember everyone, everyone who'd worked on it that came on to Layer Cake, like, oh God, I just worked on this terrible low-budget zombie movie that's set in a pub and they're like, it's going to be a disaster. And it was Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when it came out and it was a huge hit, all those same crew were going, I always knew it was going to be an absolute... <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly they were wearing their Shaun of the Dead yeah. jackets. Yeah. Shaun of the Dead. But no-one knows. That's crew the point. No-one really knows. It is you know, they didn't know. They thought it was going to be a peak... I've heard similar stories on the Full Monty that someone, like the, the producer of the Full Monty at the, at the rap party said, well, you'll be able to pick up a copy of this in the bargain basement <laughs> in your local petrol station. <laughs> and then it turned into something, you know what I mean? It's yeah. only, it is alchemy, though. It's not an exact it's a, science. Well, that's, it's not an exact yeah, science. I mean, it, yeah. But it was, I mean, it was a huge hit. Mm. That, was it in the summer it came out that it was, it, the lock yeah, it was, was. was massive, yeah, globally. I, I remember going to the cinema and being blown away when I walked out the cinema because it had everything. It had laughs. Yeah. action yeah. it was beautifully shot at that time because British cinema wasn't stylish and it, it looked so stylish mm. and they, in, God brought those video music video aesthetic to it yes slow mo stuff Tim Morris it. Jones who was, a, who, was the, it, who was the DOP was a lot to do with I think with the success of Lockstock cause he and brilliantly his. edited as well yeah who edited it do you can't remember I can't, I can't remember. remember but I know it was well really, yeah. Yeah, I think the editors <clears> want to become a but certainly the pop video sensibilities of, yeah because that's what Guy Richie did before that, yeah. But Maury, more importantly, that Maury brought all these toys, you know, because Tim Morris Jones had done those Smirnoff adverts, and he was he was desperate to get into film, and and he'd done very. They were smart, you know. And we've all tried to replicate that formula by well, going. He was, he was what like, we need is a really talented DOP, <laughs> like like Guy did, you know. And it does make a huge difference. And and but Tim brought all of that stylized movement yeah. and uh, those all cameras. Of it is a is a is a is a coming together of yeah. Very luckily, coming together with talented people. It's yeah. the right actors in the right roles. Yeah. It's the right script. It's Guy Ritchie at that point in his career yeah. writing that script. Yeah. That DOP, a great editor. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. and it's yeah. like Steven Spielberg sometimes gets it right. Steven Spielberg sometimes doesn't get it right. You yeah. know, yeah. Hook or, or films like Always. It doesn't always kind of the magic doesn't always work. So, but and it's yeah, it about looks, trying to manage those things as a an explosion of luck. But yeah. where where that worked, you know, that kind of alignment of the stars but also worked for you Ronnie with your uh, you know your debut feature film which was the critically acclaimed Shifty the script of course was penned by your good self which also won Film London's microwave scheme in 2006 mm-hmm. the prize of course was the funding to get Shifty made and and since then you've obviously you know, you've worked with this lovely man yep. uh, but also the likes of 
Andrea Riseborough, Riz Ahmed, Danny Mays, Nicholas Holt, Mark Strong, Felicity Jones, Sir Ben Kingsley, Sir Anthony Hopkins. You've also worked with Hollywood legend Joel Silver. What kind of processes did you have to go through with him? The reason why Shifty worked as a movie was because, and this is going back to people like Guy Ritchie, or is that I made a movie about where I grew up in Harlow in Essex. And it was fundamentally about a real person that I knew and all the characters in that movie were my friends. But I always thought I wanted to be Tony Scott or work within the realms of Joel Silver, who we'll get on to right. talk about. I wanted to become an action movie set director, piece director. A set-piece director. I'd right. grown up on Die Hard, Leaf Weapon and Predator. That was, that was your dream at the... It was my dream. So my second film was a complete departure from the first. It was like Welcome to the Punch. It was a homage to Hong Kong action cinema of the late 80s and early 90s and John Woo. And um, and and it, it was stylistic and it was very, very different from Shifty. And then in in three leaps, I then moved on to making Collide with Joel Silver. And I think, you know, you couldn't get further apart in the in the process of filmmaking. In three moves, I went from mm-hmm. shifty, being surrounded, baking it with my friends and people I loved over a beautiful summer. I suddenly was within an arena that was unfamiliar to me. Like, even Welcome to the Punch, you know, if it's whether you like that film or you don't like that film, it was still me. Mm-hmm. It was still fundamentally us making it in the same bubble that we made Shifty just on a bigger budget. Mm. But creatively, it was still pretty much down to us, and what you saw is what you get. So if you don't like it, you don't like it. But Collide, was it was called Autobahn at the time, it was the first time that I started to feel that I was slightly losing control of what I'd always tried to grip onto. And I found myself in an arena where I was uncomfortable a little bit making that film. I sort of Can I interject just for one yeah, second? Yeah, go for it, go for it. One of the most important things about the process which Rani went into and the thing which we haven't mentioned is the fear of the loss of money. You know what I mean? Once you start working in that environment with those big players, with those big actors, there's a lot of dough involved. Mm-hmm. And and people are nervous and fearful. And once fear creeps in, it's very difficult. It's not... You know, yeah. when, there's, there's, when there's other people sitting beside the monitor who are nervous and fearful, it spreads. Fear is, is the main thing at breakfast time. Everyone's like, well, will we get it done? How are we going to do this? Whereas with Shifty, and to a degree, working to the punch and you know the little movie i made is just a it's a totally different thing you're, you're creating something on your own within the prox within the the budget and the day getting the day filming the day that you need to film to make it work for the money you have but there's no one in, no one getting involved with you and that's the difference between yeah. making films in the studio system and it's something which we've both learned about and both mm. would love to do again and will do again but we'll make sure the terms are slightly different. Making Collide, there was a point where the financiers phoned me up and said, listen, we're going to put Anthony Hopkins and Ben Kingsley as the villains in Collide. And I, my immediate reaction was the two villains were written for year-old, a 30-year-old German and a 30-year-old Turkish guy. And, my, and, that's how this, and they were very small parts, the two villains. And my immediate reaction was like... My gut was, guys, I don't know if that's right to put these two heavyweights into these small roles and they're, like, <laughs> twice the age as well. <clears throat> and they ended up bringing something, like, special and individual to it. And, you know, I, I there was a point where I flipped the table and I got angry and I think I tried to punch a wall because I was like, this is crazy, like, we're changing the script and these... I don't know if these actors are right for it, but then who am I to turn down Anthony Hopkins and Ben yeah, Kingsley. Yeah, yeah. And I'm being given an opportunity to direct a $28 million action movie. So you sit yeah. and you go, well, I need to just... 
hunker down and do the best I can and get yeah. this over the over the line. And you start to rewrite the script and. And then when you watch it, yeah, they're great. Ben Kingsley is hilarious in it, and yeah. Kingsley Hopkins brought his A game, and they were fantastic. And I've become friends with Kingsley since, and we're producing a World War One movie together. And you know, we're so you know, and and it went great. But you know, you go well. Should I have stuck to my heart? Because the thing that the critics came at me straight away when they watched the film is why are Ben Kingsley and Anthony Hopkins in this. At B, at B action movie, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, but you kind of know in your gut you're going to get heat for that sort of stuff. Presumably you know? they cost a lot of money. Right? Yeah, they cost a lot of money, and they, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting paid a lot of money. And but then also you've got Joel Silver who's screaming down the phone to change, make script changes. What five weeks before you go into production? Because originally the movie was shaped like. Um, Deadpool. It was all one long action sequence with non-linear flashbacks to Nick Holtz and Felicity Jones's relationship, right. and then Joel Silver, <clears throat> five weeks before we shot the film, finds him out and goes, "I don't fucking make movies with flashbacks." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what is that. I don't know what had ever happened at that right, point. Right. I'm sure it's like Harvey Weinstein. Whatever was going on in Joel Silver's life yeah. at that point in time, flashbacks. It was like, flashbacks are out. The stories. I don't fucking make movies with flashbacks. <laughs> so I'm like, "What do you mean you don't make movies with flashbacks?" I've just read the script. I don't make movies with flashbacks. <laughs> I was like, "What do you mean you just read the script?" We've been on this project for like months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, spinning out of control. And then, um, so then I sat there rewriting this script, moved all the flashbacks to the beginning, and suddenly that movie that was shifty or whatever is personal to you starts slipping out of your fingers, mm. and you're rewriting the script. And I found myself at three in the morning rewriting the script whilst we're shooting, writing new scenes because the film just wasn't working, and trying to figure it out and doing the best you can. And you go, wow! Like if you're going to get, if I'm going to get involved in this situation again. That this script needs to be locked. Everyone needs to be happy, you know, in the process of where we are. Because there were mornings where I was driving in on, on Collide, staring out the window, going, "How have I got to this point of where I'm driving in?" On because you're still deeply flattered. You're, you're still, still deeply flattered, flattered that, someone's, yeah. that someone's allowed you to do it. And it takes a lot to to, to be flat. To you know, to obviously you know it's a great opportunity, or you think it's a great opportunity. So it takes a lot to walk away from that, and you just go, "I've got to just make it work. I've got to make this work." And and I'm sure you've had the same in acting jobs, right? Where you've kind of got all yeah. before the hand the, the conversation. Yeah, I was going to say that in terms, you know, directors have their pressures. I mean, do you feel, do you feel as an actor when you're on a project that isn't really, do you feel that it's not going as well? Do you feel (laughs) when you feel on set it's not going as well? I mean, I've been in eighty terrible films. I mean, (laughs) eighty. which is a lot, right? So I'm really good and I know a lot about being in terrible films and I know a lot about the process of how that goes wrong, which is why at 50 I've decided, you know, to to take control of the means of production, stop being a foot soldier and start producing and directing, um, <clears throat> which I'm loving. Because you just sit there going, you sit there going, wrong call. But it's not for you to say that, you know what I mean? You just have to sit there and let it happen around you. But there's, you know, there's a sort of 19-year-old bloke in a dress with his nose pierced and you're going, bruv, you doing (laughs) but it's fine you let it go because he in his own way is trying to do the same thing he's like 19 he's done two music videos and he's going I've got to make this work this is a great opportunity all directors have to say yes even Christopher Nolan has to say yes at some point to whoever's financing the movie whoever's releasing the movie whether that be Warner Brothers or Sony as a director Ridley Scott you know he produced Welcome to the Punch I know stories where he was telling me he had to say yes to the studio even now in his career but the important thing about when you become a director is those moments when you choose to say no. Mm-hmm. And that sets the part again, I think, that sets diff- directors apart where... And you were telling me that you were on a massive budget film and 
you know, that he was, the, the director was having the wrong arguments. He was fighting about what the colour of the columns and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because he was losing every other battle. He was choosing right, to fight right, about right, right, right. Like, what the curtains should look like on set. And you have to choose your moments when you yeah. go, no. And I think I am learning that process. Yeah. You have to learn when to concede and when not to. Weirdly, and this is an interesting point, which is the struggle between actors and directors when it becomes like a power struggle. And you're like, no, 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 I'm just talking creatively. I'm not questioning your talent. But I'd like to do this. Like, well, no, actually. I need you to do this. So as an actor, you have to then go, okay, that's not a battle I'm prepared to have because it doesn't ultimately matter or change how the audience are going to perceive my character. I've just got to do what I have to do within the confines that he wants me to walk from A to B rather from A to C. Mm -hmm. And you can still do your shit within that, the confines of that. And that's the thrill for me now is to do, you know, in the very simplest form is to get what I want to get across to the audience within the, constra the constraints that the director has put on me and still succeed and walk away from the scene and go, nailed that. <laughs> you had your directorial debut with Eat Locals last year? Yeah. Last year. Yeah. Do you felt that that armed you a bit to jump into the kind of directing arena? I felt really confident with the actors, but I think I fell into the same I fell into the same trap that I was so thrilled to be doing it and thrilled to be allowed to do it that I lot let go. I let a lot go. But um I've you know, when I watch actors now having directed, you know, having directed scenes and realizing, you know, that it's an edit and, you know, it's a, it's a much simpler thing. The acting is a lot simpler than actors, you know, allow it to be. You know, they, me included, they want a performance to be, say a scene's two minutes long, they want the performance to be like a play where they go from A to Z in the two minutes and hit every point and every beat perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't need to do that, you know what I mean? It's like, well, concentrate on the beginning and then we can pick up the rest later. But they, but there's something in an actor that wants to... I guess it's from... It's a perfection thing. They want every single beat to be there, and it doesn't need to be, unless it's one take. It doesn't need to be. It, you know, you don't need to have that performance perfect. What's the best bit? What's your, what's your favourite part? Is it being on set and it's... As soon as you're yelling action and you see what you've been writing for months, if not years, oh, come to life, is that is, uh, is, is that it? What was the best I remember bit that you? when we were making Shifty, that the, and Jason probably experienced this on um, e Locals, is that when we were in the when we were making the film and you know you have your script and it's there as a piece of paper document on your on your on your desk, we had started casting and I think we were pretty far in the casting process. And I, I was I was new to this, and you know, every, all your actors' headshots go on the wall in and around who your characters are. Once they're filled, like a jigsaw. yeah, once you're filled, it's like a jigsaw. You have your Shifty, your Danny Mays, your mm. Jason Fleming, and I remember it was pretty far. I think we had had two spaces to fill, and they were just sort of small parts. And we had the the wall was fun. It was everyone had gone home, and I was sitting there one night working on something at the script or whatever. Um, and I just looked up and I saw all these faces, like and of these amazing actors that were going to be in the movie and I was like wow we're like this and it's an amazing mm. feeling when you see all of these this coming together of this talent mm. and creative talent and I just had this really warm feeling I was like wow we're going to make a film man and I remember that that's a really those moments in pre-production are beautiful and we had a great time recently with me and Jason Jason came on board as a um, a producer on a the sequel to Layer Cake, a TV show called Viva La Madness, which Jason Statham is taking over from Daniel Craig in the role of um, the lead gangster in Layer Cake. So we were making this sequel called Viva La Madness, and uh, and me and Jason started workshopping with the actors together, and we were working with Danny Mays and Paul Anderson, and these amazing Johnny, you know, talking to people like Johnny Harris and amazing British talent, and I just 
that process when me and you were in the you know we're in a room together and we've got a camera and it's mm-hmm. handheld and it's just you creating and we were you know you know in, well, unobserved working unobserved together unobserved working together it was just really relaxed and it made me rem- it f- it reminded me of working on shifty mm-hmm. when we, I was with Riz and Danny and just in these work rehearsal rooms just us and a camera and just creating and coming up with stuff and no outside pressures Amazing. to a degree because and that was a real that, they're beautiful moments like the rehearsal time and it just felt really lovely to be in a situation where we both felt the same about a lot a lot of what we were seeing and to, to get to a point where you can collaborate with someone like that without egos is, is, is a that's what that's the dream you know because that's when creativity really happens you know I find for me that I work better in a collaborative process where no one works well in fear I mean they, they believe yeah. that they do but they don't and, you know it I just don't believe it. I don't believe... This is my point, with, with, and it's so true. It's, and it's the same with acting as it is with directing. 90% of it is confidence, right? If you take an actor and destroy him, he won't be able to open that door. He won't be able to put his hand on the doorknob <laughs> yeah, and turn he's it. He's like, he'd be like, even if he's not shaking, he just doubts whether he can open the door. And once he <laughs> yeah. doubts whether he can open the door, he ain't going to be able to open it. And I think it's the same with directors, costume designers... DOPs, everyone mm. needs to feel that they're allowed to do what they do instinctively. And when they are in that place, and it, that's the skill, that's what Matt Vaughan's so brilliant at, and Guy Ritchie, to be fair, is they surround themselves with talent. And then Guy uh, and Matt have a way of, of, you know, they've got egos, of course they have, but they have a way of separating themselves from that ego. And they go, whoever comes up with the best idea, I'm going to go with that. And it doesn't need to be theirs, you know. And Matt and Guy both both have that, which is an impressive quality for a filmmaker because a lot of filmmakers go, that's what I want to do and that's what we're fucking doing. And it is an asset, and we've talked about it being an important asset, about fighting your battles when you need to. But if someone's got a great idea, listen to it. Claim it as your own and yeah. move forward. Claim it as your own, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm joking. No, it's true, it's true, it's absolutely true. Of course it was always my idea. <laughs> that's true. I mean, you know, Guy, Guy Ritchie is supported by a lot of talent, as, as is Matt Vaughan, but it doesn't make any difference. They're, at the end of the day, it's, you know, directed by Guy or Matt, you know, and that's, that's what matters, and they take the accolades. So, Jason, you, you yourself are no stranger to working with heavyweights like like Mr. Creevy. Yep. Guy Ritchie, Michael Kane, Sir Ben Kingsley as well. Yep. Uh, Sean Connery, Kevin Bacon, Brad Pitt, David Fincher. Who's been the most fun to work with aside obviously from the person you're from saying? Ranzi's family, so that's different, but there was an interview I did a while ago, which my missus killed me for, because the, the question was, as you just asked it, but more directly, said, what was your best day ever? And stupidly I said, working on Benjamin Button on the, le- on the side of Lake Pochatrain, doing a scene with uh, Brad Pitt being directed by David Fincher. Of course, what I should have said, <laughs> stupidly, of course, what every guy should say is marrying you, you know, marrying my wife, who I love dearly. Having my two twin sons. Having my two twin sons. <laughs> but no, I said, being on the set with that, because I'm simple and I don't, and, I, and you know, my, my passion from since I was a child was to, was to, to do, a, to make films and to be in a place where every single person around you has won an Oscar for what they do. Uh, is an amazing feeling. I mean, that's the that's the bucket list. That's what I wanted to tick more than anything to be in a proper amazing, amazing film. Um, but I remember when you were making that, you said you, you were 
happy in that process as well, right? Because you totally. skip to work every day. Like, I mean, I skip to work on Cedar David. Chucky, so when, when you put me in front of David Fincher and Brad Pitt, I'm like, I f- hover to work. <laughs> Can I say that? You always put down Cedar Chucky. I've seen Cedar Chucky. It's quite a good BBB films. You always put down Cedar Chucky. And this is just going out to the director of Cedar Chucky. Yeah. Don't take it too, 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 too hard. I don't know. No, he knew what he was making. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Same question to you, Rani. Who's been the most fun to work with, aside from the man to your right? Nicholas Holt is a lovely, yeah. wicked guy. Like, I still text him constantly, and we're like, love you, man, love you, brother, how you doing? And Felicity Jones, both of them are like completely grounded, down-to-earth. But you friends with Nick as well, yeah. from the X-Men films. He's a lovely guy, 100% genuine, is as nice as he appears yeah, on screen he is. as he, he is, is in he real really life. Is, he's right. like... He's got a huge heart. He's empathetic, isn't he? He's like he's a lovely guy. So it's a pleasure to work with Nick because, you know, in the struggle of making that film, he, I, at least I didn't have any hassle off my with main him. lead. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he was yeah. like, put his arm around me, said, "Look, we're all in this together, mate." And you say it was great. And there was a few hairy times on set where, you know, what a stuntman almost got was almost killed by getting hit by a car. He dived out the way at the wrong time, and it was traumatic. And me and Nicholas like, cuddling each other on set. Like you needed that, you know. Yeah, Nick yeah. was great. James McAvoy is a wicked guy as well, yeah, isn't he? You worked with all these boys, all your X Men boys. James yeah. McAvoy oh, yeah. and well, Nick. Welcome Holt. to the punch as well. We did, didn't we? Yeah, welcome to the punch. You know, didn't you and, kill then, me in Welcome to the Punch? No, that was Mark Strong killed me. In Mark Strong yeah, killed yeah. you. Mark Strong's a wicked Mark, guy. Mark yeah, Strong. I, I, luckily, I've all been. Like, ben Kingsley's a wicked guy, but they're all English. All, all, <laughs> <laughs> they are all English. The um, the difference between different actors, I, I'd say, and is that all different actors need certain different things off of a director, and that's the key to becoming a director, is that you have to figure out how to manage your different actors. One actor won't want to speak to you at all. They don't need your input, they don't want to hear what you've got to say, they've had this performance pre-planned in their head six months before they stepped onto set, and if they really need to ask you anything, it would just be like, where do you need me to stop, where do you need me to stand? And if you try and interfere, they'll be like, I don't really need to hear it because I know exactly how I'm going to play it, and you're kind of confusing me. So, And you sort of immediately go, oh, right, I'm going to back off with that guy yeah. you know especially when you're welcome to the punch we've got an ensemble of like david morrissey peter mullen jason fleming johnny harris mark strong james mcavoy do you know what i mean you've got all these different actors and you're trying to figure out and each actor needs a different thing off you whereas mark strong is probably more danny Mays is in that film as well mark strong's probably more per, wants to kind of talk about the process and have a discussion and and Co- look, more collaborative, more collaborative, and wants to kind of bring you in on that. And James, we've already we'd already done our work, pro, our, our process before we'd stepped onto set because we'd gone through the script together. So that that's his process. He wants to go through with the director before he steps onto set. So he's gone through every line and talked to you about it. And he's like, why, why am I saying this line? Why am I saying that? So that doesn't need to happen there and then. Um, yeah, Riz wants to. Riz is very analytical of his performance and wants to discuss it in depth. Danny is quite similar, looking at the thematics. Is there anybody? Um, I mean, but for both of you, either either. Uh, well, certainly for you, Rani, uh, from an acting point of view, is there anybody that you have a desire to work with? And and for you, Jason, you know, from a directing point of view, is there anybody that you'd like to work with? Um, I did a film called uh, Stonehurst Asylum, and Ben Kingsley's t- t- doing this speech, and I was meant to be dead on the floor, 
and I I just sort of sat there with one eye open on that because I couldn't stop watching him. He's he's incredible to watch. And when he cut it, Ben would go, Sir Ben would go, um, Jason, please remain dead during the scene. Watch it on the playback. And I was like, Sorry, Ben, sorry, sorry. <clears throat> but you know, there are a few actors that really stand out. Yeah, he was like when we were making Sir Collide. Ben's... I can. He was hilarious as this kind of t- crazy. He's, amazing. he's such a talent. Isn't he's it? such a talent and. I'd have all these ideas of how the scene's going to be blocked before he stepped onto set. You know, Jet Ben, you're going to be over here and you're going to be here. And he's like, well, I thought that I'd be on the floor for this scene, like being surrounded by women, just laying here. And I'd be like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's do it like that. Yeah, because, you know, he's, again, it's experience. And, and confidence. Just, again, it comes down to confidence, you know. I always say to anyone, young actors especially, I say, look, if, that, if someone messes with your confidence or you feel that your confidence is, is seeping away from you, shake hands and say thanks for your advice and walk away. Because, you know, Kingsley's like the ultimate of confidence, but he just goes with his instinct and that's why he's so good. Same with all those big boys. You know, they know what they... They just go with what they think and generally your first instinct is the best thing to... You know, the best, the best instinct you can have. You know, I'd like to work with more female actors... You know, the sequel to Shifty that we're working on at the moment called The Bright Side has got female lead. And um, I think just intrinsically that my my stories have been very male-centric and there's a wealth of um, unbelievable female talent out there that I want to work with. What have you been working on recently? John Woo is remaking The Killer with uh, Lupita Nyong'o and... um, I rewrote The Killer, for example. I wrote a big action film called The Queen's Guard. Mm. I've worked on other projects in Hollywood where I write. But that's really where I've got more my most of my experience because, you know, they, there's that famous saying about, you know, you're not really kind of... Um, you don't get good at something until you kind of have 10,000 hours experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that on directing. I don't have that on set time. You might have with your 100,000 <laughs> experience. But the one place I do have it is in writing. Yeah. You know, I write a lot. And I just spent a year working on Netflix TV show, writing 10 episodes of television. I've just... So I've been through that process. Yeah, you know what you're doing big time. I know what I'm doing big time. I'd say I'm, I'm very confident as a writer and I think over the next decade, I'm going to make go back to making more sp- more smaller personal films like Shifty. But I'm going to sort of sell and work on bigger Hollywood action movies as a writer. Hopefully, that's right, like right, my process right. that I want to go through. Who are your heroes? Yeah, they don't necessarily have to be from a filmmaking background, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, all, people like, that have inspired you. Always, always Muhammad Ali. I've always been inspired by Muhammad. I think you have as well. You? My um, son's yeah. my son's called Cassius because uh, because my wife wouldn't let me call my young white middle class kid Muhammad. <laughs> Muhammad Fleming. Muhammad she Fleming. said you've got to earn a shitload of money if you're going to call your little white blonde kid Muhammad. Jace. I was like, okay, okay. Well, there's no guarantee of that. So let's call him Cassius. I've checked you. You'd love De Niro, right? Yeah, always. De Niro is somebody really bad. You wanted to get into the game. That soon changed. Anyway, <laughs> that's for another podcast. Okay. We, we should do the whole story just as one podcast as De Niro's story. Gene um, um, Hackman, I loved... I was Gene Hackman. Hackman was my hero. Have you ever had a I can't believe I'm doing this moment? In a good way or a bad way? It could be good or bad. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the good and the bad, right? The bad is getting back to seat of Chucky... Dressed as Santa, getting stabbed by a doll that's not working properly was my lowest form of point. Because at the same time, um, they were doing... uh, Jude Law was doing that film in Budapest about, you know, like the Western... 
and he was dressed as a cowboy man, which is what I've always wanted to be, and I was dressed as Santa. <laughs> and we he go, all right, Jay, and I'm like, all right, and, he, and, and I go, what are you doing? And he, and he said to me, he said, what are you doing? And I went, what do you think I'm doing? I'm dressed like Santa Claus. He said, you're playing Santa? I went, yeah. <laughs> and then I went on set and got stabbed by a dog. That was the most depressed I've ever been, ever been. And, um, and the best has been on the lake. The best is on Lake Potter Train with old Finch and Dad. Right and I was like, where are you now, Jude? <laughs> <laughs> same, same question for you, Ronnie. A bad day on set. I One of the, the worst day. days. I'll day. talk about it. Like, we're here. This is your first podcast, 60 Foot Geek. I'll give you this story. I'll give, I'll give you this. Story. Yes. I'll give you this. It doesn't have to be in detail. I was, no, um, no, no. I was doing... So when we were making Clyde with Anthony Hopkins, me and him were very much in the process of sending each other emails about his character and we were, there was a monologue that Anthony Hopkins delivers in the middle of the movie which on page went on for about 10 pages no no it didn't go it went on for about five pages but it would have been as a piece on camera it would have gone on for about 10 minutes so he kept Hopkins kept adding bits to the speech like he said I've got this great idea and I was like he's Anthony Hopkins I'm like yeah wonderful yeah do that put that bit in and then I hadn't really realised how much the speech, that this monologue that he delivers, had ballooned. So I said to him, um, the night before, stupidly, when I got him from the shoot, because I was on some, I was shooting on some other scene and it was my first day with him, with Anthony, um, I sent him an email saying, I don't think we're going to be able to do all that whole monologue. I wouldn't want any of it ended up on the cutting room floor. And I don't know whatever headspace he was in, but I think he read the email and said that, you know, if we shoot that, I'm just going to just going to end up on the cutting room floor. I'm not going to use it. So he read it as a threat, and it was never meant to be a threat. It was meant to be like, "Hey, let's not lose any of this great yeah. stuff. Let's try to." So let's I guess, not work you harder than we have to. Yeah, let's not work you harder than you have to. You're Tony Hopkins. Let's just like get yeah. what we need to get and get out there. So I get to set, and the first AD says Tony's not coming out of his trailer. And I said, "What do you mean Tony's not coming out of his trailer? So he's not coming out of his trailer. He's pretty pissed off." I said, "What do you mean he's pissed off?" I said, "You need to go and speak to Tony." And but then I Ben Pugh's there, and he says, "Mate, Hopkins is in a real mood with you. You need to go and chat to him." So I'm sweating it's like a really hot day in Germany I was coming down with a flu I felt really rough I go to his trailer I knock on Anthony Hopkins door <laughs> he opens the door and he's like what's Hopkins voice well yeah that's lovely that's the worst don't do his voice don't do his voice so I go to his door Tony Hopkins and um, I go to his door and I knock on the door and he opens it and he's eating the bowl of muesli and he said I've had it with you I've had it with you I've fucking had it with you I'm done I'm done. It's over. Oh I'm done. God. And I'm like, what, what, I'm like, Tony, 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 what do you mean I'm done? He's just like, you know, I've had it, I've, I've, I've had it with actors, directors like you before who, you know, you're all kind of nice to me before you want me on set and then as soon as it kind of comes to the day, you start cutting the scenes or getting rid of stuff and he was in a really bad mood. I don't know what was going on with him, what was happening in his life at that time. <laughs> so he just basically didn't want me in the trailer so I stepped out on the trailer and I thought, fuck this, I've got to try and pull this back. It's my first day of Anthony Hopkins. He's in a really bad mood. He doesn't want to speak to me. So uh, I knocked back on his trailer, he opened the door, I said, can I come in, Tony? And he says, yeah, no worries, come in. And um, he he's standing in his trailer, and I thought, I've got, I've, this has got to be the best directing moment of my life, I've got to pull this off. I said, Tony, I said, you know, ever since I saw you in Remains of the Day, it's one of the greatest performances of a, or, 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 by a male actor in a lead performance I've ever seen. Right. And, and, you know, and I'm talking to him, and I'm, give, and I'm pumping him up, I'm pumping him up like a boxer about to get up the set, and he goes, he goes keep, keep, keep it coming, I can, I, can feel, I can feel the juices rushing back to my balls. <laughs> 
and I'm pumping him up and I'm like he ends up putting his hands out we both end up gripping each other's right. hands and we're rocking back and forth and then in the end they gave him a massive hug and I just went out back onto set and I said turn those fucking cameras on I think a, 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 the medic gave me a B12 injection in my ass. Mr start. Hopkins is coming Mr Hopkins is coming and we filmed with five cameras we did three takes and then he just like walked off and it was done and that was my first day and that is like the best and worst of it because it's an amazing because you like suddenly you go at the end of the day I was like I'm just sitting here working with Anthony Hopkins and he did this amazing monologue and he pulled it off but at the beginning of the day it was the worst because I thought I was on the precipice of him not coming out of the trailer so in one in the space of an hour I went from having like the best experience the worst experience to one of your best experiences but but also you know and and also a kind of momentous part of you know a victory for you as a director because you, you took you bought an actor Back, you know, out of this trailer, who did not want to come out and work with you? <laughs> and brought him back from the brink. That's yeah. a real achievement. And, yeah, and, and this is just any actor. Yeah, <laughs> I said it's one of the hardest days directing I've ever had. Is like coaxing Hopkins out because he didn't want to come on the set that day. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and that's the best and worst of it. And you know, and at the end of the day, you sit there staring, going, "Ava, I'm working with Andy Hopkins. This is fantastic." <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up there for Mr. Jason Fleming and Mr. Iran Creevy. Certainly the best of times to have them both in the studio for our very first ep of 60 Foot Geek. And I want to say a massive thanks to them, uh, as well as the amazing 60 Foot Geek team. Carl Rolf, our amazing sound engineer. Nick Alex, my bro, who edited it. And we spent days giving you the best show possible. Nick, cheers. Dave Snell, our resident stills photographer, for providing all the amazing uh, behind-the-scenes photographs you would have seen on our Facebook and Instagram feeds. Dave, thank you. Nin Dillon, for giving 60-foot geek a face uh, in in the form of all the amazing logo design he's done for us. Um, thanks, Nin. I want to say massive thanks to John Love and everyone at Another Tongue for all their amazing support. But the biggest thanks goes to you for downloading and listening to our exciting first episode. We really hope you enjoyed it and we can't wait to do another one. Please carry on following us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter for more news about who our new guests might be for episode two. Uh, But until then, all the best and stay cool, my geeky film friends.